Hey all you heroes, hawks, heralds, crows, pirates, and wardens. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we unpack, discuss, and galaxy brain about all the lore behind the Dragon Age series. We are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe, from character deep dives to exalted marches and elven gods. We will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hello and welcome to the Dragon Age lore cast, where we talk about Dragon Age and its lore. I am one of your hosts, Austin, also known as Teacup, and I am here with my other host. I'm Shelby, or SheCup. And we are here to continue our series on conflicts of Thetis, and continuing in our theme, we are talking about an event heavily featured in Dragon Age Inquisition. Yeah, actually, funny enough, we're not really continuing the series. We are ending the series because this is the last one on our list that we have to talk about. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess it is the last kind of big thing in the timeline. Yeah, thus far. Yeah. And um, so that also means we'll be ending our season five pretty soon. Wow. That's crazy. Starting season six. That's so weird. I cannot believe we've been doing this for this long. I know. All right. Well, let's get into it. So we're talking about the Exalted Council today. And the Exalted Council is what happens in Trespasser. It happens two years after Corypheus is defeated in 944 Dragon. And it's called at the request of whoever is Divine Victoria, either Vivian, Liliana, or Cassandra. So we're going to get into that today. Obviously, heavy spoilers for Trespasser um, and anything like that, if you care. So I only have one fun fact today. Only one. So the fun fact is that this Exalted Council is the only Exalted Council that's ever occurred in Thetis, at least as far as we know currently. The first thing I kind of wanted to talk about is what is an Exalted Council? And I mean, unfortunately, since there's only been one, we don't really have that much to go off of. And we can't say, yeah, this is what it is based on 18 that have happened. We just have the one. So... If we ever do have another exalted exalted council, it may be different. Who knows? Um, but what we know currently is that this is essentially a committee of senior high-level diplomats, ambassadors, and trusted counselors. And they basically all come together, discuss a certain situation, and try to make a decision. And... The Dragon Age in Inquisition, Divine Victoria actually keeps the Exalted Council together as kind of an advisory board after the Council convenes with the Inquisition. Um, and so the Exalted Council go on then to assist and advise her on um, a bunch of different things over the next several years. Well, I guess my first discussion question that I have is, do you think the Exalted Council is a good thing? Do you think it's effective? 
why or why not? I think the game kind of sets us up to have a negative view of the Exalted Council, at least as a group, because we walk into that situation and we've just saved Thetis and kept Thetis from falling apart. And they're all like, you're ruining our lives. And we're angry nobles who are angry about you encroaching upon our power. And so I think the game and Trespasser, Trespasser kind of sets you up to be angry at the Exalted Council, which I think is part of the reason, other than his aesthetic design, of why we all are so mad at Bantigan is because we're like, dude, why are you being such a jerk? Okay, uh, you brought him up. First of all, we're going to talk about Bantigan later. Second of all, or Arl Tegan later. Second of all, I will never not be mad at this man's glow down. Okay, so we're just going to have to put a pin in this until the second half of the episode. Right, but this really is an unprecedented council, and we'll get in there in like when we talk about the members but this is the first time that a lot of these countries have met together under a banner of peace to decide something together Mm -hmm. the exalted council it's kind of like as big of a deal as the un was when they created it after world war ii yeah i think that's fair and i also think that like I think it's important for the divine to have counselors, um, to have advisors and and diplomats from different countries, not just Orle, who are like, hey, this would be bad for my country. Like, please don't do this. Because without counselors, I mean, we talked extensively about the exalted march to the Dales and how the response was basically a huge overreaction by the divine. And if she had had counselors and and maybe a group like this of a lot of different people that said, hey, that's not going to be a good decision. Maybe that could have been avoided. So I think the idea of it is a good thing. Um, As usual, as I always am with my takes about institutions, the execution of it is where it tends to fall apart for me. I tend to agree with that. And like, it comes to a point and like, I think we can kind of merge this with who are the members, but there are several like very prominent and huge players in Thetis who are not represented in this divine council. Like the elves are not represented at all in this divine council, unless you count the inquisitor being an elf participating in discussions. And that is circumstantial. The free cities are not really represented. Granted, they don't really have anyone like they would have to come together and vote on someone to represent them. And I see, given their history, I find that unlikely that they would get some Mm -hmm. one person to represent them. What surprises me the most, and I know there is a potential in here, is that Navara is not represented, especially Navara's relation to the Chantry. Yeah, I agree. I, I very much agree with that. And I know there's a potential for Cassandra to be on the exalted council, even if she's not divine, but even without her, like she doesn't really claim Navara. She, you know, she was the right hand of the divine for more years than she spent in Navara. So like, I don't want to say she's more Orlesian than she is Navara because she definitely still like claims that that's where she's from, but 
she doesn't claim to represent them in any in, in any way. And not only that, but we don't have any dwarven representation. We obviously don't have any Kunari representation. And not only that, we don't have any Antivan representation, any Ravani representation, any Anderfels representation. Like there's no one representing any of those groups. It's literally just Ferelden, Orle, and Taventer. Right. And I don't even think Dorian. I, it's been a long time since I've played the DLC, so I'd have to get in there and figure that out. But I don't even think Dorian participates in major of the conversations. He's just there as their ambassador. Um, I don't know if we can take that for fact, just because we see a couple cutscenes with three of the members. Um, so I'm not sure we can make that assumption, but he is technically on the council as Taventer's ambassador. So let's get into the rest of the members. So we do have Divine Victoria, obviously, as herself, the chairwoman. We have Arl Tegan Guerin, who is Ferelden's ambassador. We have Duke Cyril de Montfort, who is Orlais ambassador. We have Dorian Pavas, Magister Dorian Pavas, as Taventer's ambassador. And potentially Cassandra Pentagast can also be on the Exalted Council if she is not Divine Victoria. So, um, what actually happens at this Exalted Council? Well, you can you can play the game and see that for yourself in Trespasser, but in a word, it does not go well. You know this if you've played the game. It goes very terribly, very poorly. And um, the Exalted Council is called two years after Corypheus is defeated, and its purpose is to determine the fate of the Inquisition. And the Inquisitor and Cullen and Josephine as advisors, they arrive riding in on horses and people are like basically bowing down and waving to them and very, very celebratory. Um, and they arrive at the Winter Palace where the Exalted Council is being held. And so Divine Victoria leads the council. She is kind of um, the person who calls everything to order. And she's flanked by the Ferelden and the Orlesian ambassadors. And those two have vastly different opinions on what should happen to the Inquisition. But they both agree in their suspicion and distrust of the Inquisition and its leadership, especially given the Inquisitor's special powers with their hand and everything. So basically, Ferelden's stance is to disband the Inquisition entirely, and Orlais' stance is to assimilate the Inquisition into the Orlesian military. So those are the two options. Do you have, or that's what they're presenting as the two options, do you have thoughts on how the two ambassadors behave during the Exalted Council? I think that Orlais, it's just a power grab. They view the Inquisition as an unknown force and they want to control it because they want to control all of this. And I think that the real crux of the issue is that the Inquisition in Skyhold is centered right on the border between Orlais and Ferelden. It's technically in Ferelden, on Ferelden soil, but it's close enough to Orlais. It's headed by, you know, technically... All your Inquisitors come from around the free marches. And so no matter what you choose. So none of them are Orlesian, but, you know, Liliana, Cassandra were both 
right hands of the divine in Orle, Colin is Ferelden. Josephine, while also not Orlesian, still has huge connections to Orle. The Inquisition appears very Orlesian. Uh, and so I think Ferelden sees that and it's basically like, here's this Orlesian fort on our border. And I think we have some time in our place to like sit and kind of we didn't live through the Orlesian occupation, but it is not that long. It hasn't even been 50 years since the Orlesian occupation. And that's not a lot of time. And so Ferelden still kind of sees that. And so I think that Tegan's response is understandable. My frustration with it is, and we can talk about this when we get to Tegan, is that I don't feel like Tegan would be this short-sighted. I don't feel like he, the man who looks at Loghain and says, no, you're full of crap. You you can't, like, you're not, like, we have to think about the bigger picture, isn't seeing the bigger picture in here. I feel like a little bit. And I feel like there is a middle ground that can be had of, like, setting up the Inquisition with some oversight from all of Thetis. Yeah, I agree. And I understand Ferelden and Tegan being freaked out that there is an armed military force within your country's borders, um, close to, very close to your breadbasket of the country. I completely understand that, especially when there are many people within who are not Ferelden, who do appear to be or have connections to or lay. Um, I completely understand that. But for me, what I don't really ever, what I've never really understood is Orlay's take in this. Like, why are you mad? It literally has nothing to do with you. Skyhold is not in your borders. They're the inquisition. Okay. They were your allies. So, I mean, what, what, what is your claim now? Why do you have a claim to put the Inquisition under your military? Because they, the Inquisition knows the new divine, like that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I completely understand as much as I disagree and dislike Tegan's attitude and appearance in this, I completely understand where he's coming from. Yeah. And I think, I really think that with Orlay, it comes, it comes down to two things in that you know, this is an official arm of the Chantry. Technically, the Inquisition is because it's an edict by the divine. And I think that the fact that the Inquisitor and the Inquisition basically kind of de facto bypasses the Council of Heralds and decides the Emperor of the Emperor Empress of Orlais, I'm sure that there's Orlesians like. Who did we get take taken over? Like, who are they to appoint who we want to rule? Like, mm -hmm. Orlay wants to say, you know, oh, we really control them now. Like, they might have been appointed our emperor, but now we control them. Yeah, I totally get that, and I also think we have to acknowledge, like, with these reactions here, I think it it makes a lot of sense and i think we can interpret a lot of this as like anti-elven anti-dwarven anti-cunari sentiments 
from the ambassadors if you have an inquisitor that's not human, um, because I think it makes sense, especially for a Cunari inquisitor, for these human nations, these human leaders to be much more antagonistic to you. Um, and perhaps even if you're a mage as well. So I think I think the ones that it makes the least amount of sense for is a human noble, um, which all of the human all of the humans are nobles. They're from the Trevelyan family, but you would think that nobles would be like, oh, well, th they're they're a, they're a, a free march noble. So like we can understand each other a little bit more than than you would perhaps with a Cunari or an Elven or a Dwarven mm -hmm. Inquisitor. Right. As you may know, uh, these conversations are not pretty. They don't go well. Um, they basically just scream at you and it's super infuriating. And it feels like the council members are just attacking the Inquisitor and the Inquisition. Um, and obviously the Inquisitor is super pissed off about it. And I think you have the potential to drop the F-bomb for the first time in uh, this game here at the end. Um Obviously, the Inquisitor is mad and the council gets interrupted um, because the Inquisitor has to leave because the Dragon's Breath conspiracy with the Cunari is uncovered, which is the Vitasala's attempt to destroy the Winter Palace entirely and all of mainland Thetis, to be honest. So the Inquisitor leaves to kind of go deal with this and make sure she doesn't burn down the world, which means the council has to go on break. This enrages absolutely enrages the ambassadors even if divine victoria understands and tries to defend you they're furious like they're not getting over this um josephine unfortunately the sweet soul that she is is the one that's left to kind of pick up the pieces and clean up the mess and placate the council um but even that doesn't work out too well like she tries um but She's a phenomenal negotiator, and and when she even is not able to calm them down, you you know you can imagine how pissed off they are too. Um, but the Inquisitor returns in classic Inquisitor fashion with a big splash, missing an arm, and so the the council basically has no more patience and is like, "This is your decision. You you have to either disband the Inquisition." or make it into a peacekeeping force under divine victoria like we are not going to allow you to continue in the same capacity that you are in right now and so that's the decision you have to make as the inquisitor in inquisition at the end of trespasser um and so you have that option um but as i mentioned earlier even though this uh convening of the exalted council does end here the exalted council does continue on to support the divine for several more years but as of now this is all of the information that we have on it what are they gonna do if the inquisitor just said nah f this you all don't control me peace the inquisitor is the hero of thetis like you might have the hero of ferelden and that cassandra being the hero of orlay but the Inquisitor is hero of Thetis. And I know that in the two years after after the events with Corypheus, people are less trusting of the Inquisition. But like the Inquisitor is basically this hero, this big hero that saved Thetis. Do you really think that even if you did declare war, do you think either of your countries are in a state to go to war with an organization that's as powerful as the Inquisition? Like, 
I know why they didn't give us that option, but I feel like the Inquisitor has that option to basically just say, forget you and peace out of the whole Exalted Council. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, also, I think a lot of it is that the Orlesians and the Ferelden's both are bluffing. Um, because you're right, they absolutely don't have the military power to go to war again. Not only because they just fought a whole war against Corypheus, but also the Orlesians just fought, fought a civil war. And most of the Mage Templar War took place in Ferelden. And before that, they had the Blight. So, like... They none of them have the forces or the resources to go to war for like the third or fourth time in a decade. Right. I think you would have like advisor consequences to making that decision. But I even think I think eventually most of them would be like, yeah, OK, this is what we're doing. I guess maybe Divine Victoria doesn't get behind you again. You've already said F you to the Chantry once. So yeah, so this is the Exalted Council. This is all we know about it. Um, it's a pretty important lore event. We just don't have that much info. Well, hopefully, if and when Dragon Age Dreadwolf ever comes out and I stop being mad at Jeff Keeley. Um, For gaslighting us into believing the Dragon Age or Mass Effect was going to be at the uh, Summer Game Fest. Yeah, I'll never be over that, frankly. Hopefully we get some of the aftermath of this decision and kind of what's going on. And even absolution, like we don't, we just get a mention to like, oh yeah, the Inquisition was disbanded. Okay. Right. But like, okay, that doesn't tell us any information about anything. I do like them as a like advisory board to the divine from all of these countries. I just wish that their advisory board included the other countries that the Chantry has an arm in. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, like, I, I guess it just doesn't make sense to me that Navara and the Anderfels are not included because they're both very devout. But we've already talked about this ad nauseum, so let's move on and go to our mid-break. All right. Ah, Hawk stepped in the poopy. I love you. Want a sandwich? All this for me. And I didn't get Alexius anything. Send him a fruit basket. Everyone loves those. So welcome to the middle of the show where we talk about things about the podcast that aren't the lore of Dragon Age. And it's here that we do thank our patron. Thanks. Thank you so much to our patrons and all of your support. Uh, thank you to our first patrons, Genesis and Lisa M., Thank you to our Divine Tier patron, Kit, and thank you to our Nug King patron, Lewis H. Thank you all so much for your support. You can join us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash DALorecast. You can join us there, signing up for our lowest tier, which gets you early and ad-free episodes, all the way up to coming on the show and getting your name read out on the show every episode you can join us you can sign up there we greatly appreciate any support you can get that and we're giving away merch again so you could come on and sign up at the antiven crow which is the ten dollar a month tier and you can get stickers that will be coming to you if you can't support us financially we get that not everyone is able to do that and we love being able to produce the content for free for you to get there but one another great way to support us is to review us. You can leave us comments on Apple or Spotify. 
if you leave us five stars and some kind words on Apple, we'll read it out on a future episode of the show. And if you leave us a kind comment or even a question, we'll on Spotify on one of our episodes, we'll read it out. And if it's a question or question, we'll try our best to answer it. Uh, you can also join us on Discord, uh, Cups Podcasting, the more Discord server. You can check us out there. Come and hang out with us. Talk about Dragon Age. Talk about our other show, the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. Talk about any video game that you want. Saw something at the Xbox Game Show, at Ubisoft Forward, at Summer Game Fest that you just really want to talk about. Come hop in the Discord and we can talk about it there. Other than that, that's all I got for the middle of the show. All right. Well, let's get back into it. You're looking for titsicles. Oh, that's good. Yes, and it's a real nice night for an evening. Um... Oh, you fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. Okay, so because we just know so little information about the Exalted Council, I knew it wouldn't take up a full hour-long episode, so I kind of paired this with a side character who is halfway between an actual short side character and a full character deep dive. So today we are talking about none other than Ban or Arl Tegan Garen. Ooh, ah, yep. round of applause. The saddest glowdown in all of video game history. No. In all of history, period. End of discussion. Oh. Yeah, I'm not over it. Um, he is so attractive in Origins. And then we get to... And he's not terrible in Dragon Age 2. But then we get to freaking Inquisition. And they haven't even given this man the time of day. They have used Mayor Dedrick from freaking Crestwood's face model to make this man. And I'm like, first of all, why would you use a new character to create a recurring character? It makes no sense. Do it the opposite way. But anyway, so I'm I'm going to try to rein in my hating on his appearance in Inquisition because it, it really, it could be worse. Tegan is an absolutely iconic NPC from Dragon Age Origins. He was born in 891, Blessed Age, which makes him about 2930, my age, in Origins, and 53 in Trespasser. He is the brother of Arl Eamon and Queen Rowan, which also makes him the uncle of King Kalen. He is not Alistair's uncle, but he kind of is because Alistair kind of treats him that way. And Alistair does know him and respect him and almost looks up to him in a way. So he's kind of his uncle, but not technically, not at all. So let's get into some of his pregame info, like before Origins. So... We think most likely he was born in Redcliffe during the Orlesian occupation of Ferelden. When he was two years old, he and his brother Eamon were sent to live with their family in the Free Marches so that their father could publicly support the Ferelden Rebellion and support Queen Moira Theron as the rightful ruler of Ferelden. 
So they went with their mother, who was Arlesa Marina, and she took them to her sister, who would be their aunt, and her name was Thalia Aram. And Thalia was actually the ruler of the Free March city-state of Ansberg at the time. So they live in Ansberg for the duration of the Orlesian occupation for the rest of that war. Um, and it's a pretty long journey from Redcliffe to Ansberg. If you look at it on the map, Ansberg is in the far northeastern corner of the Free Marches. And so they travel from Redcliffe, which is in the southwestern part of Ferelden, to Dinnerham, where they board a ship to Wycombe. And then Marina, their mother, got really sick, actually, during the journey across the Waking Sea to Wycombe. And once they got to Wycombe, they took a carriage to Ansberg. But unfortunately, Marina, their mother, was getting sicker and sicker. And when, when they arrived in Ansberg, she was, she was pretty much knocking down death's door. And so she um, actually died within a couple days of them reaching her sister in Ansberg in the free marches. So after their mother's death, Tegan and Eamon were obviously raised by their aunt in Ansberg, and she treated them as if they were her own children. And Tegan grew very close to his first cousin, Cador or Cador. I don't really know how to pronounce it. Um, and they quickly became like brothers, twins almost. And the pair was actually nicknamed Trouble to the Keeps uh, residents. So they all were like, okay, you guys are trouble. We're going to stay away from you. Um, and then, as we know, when Arl Rendorn Garen was killed at the Battle of West Hill in 899 Blessed, Thalia and her husband, their uncle, legally adopted Tegan and Eamon. Um, I guess she doesn't adopt Rowan because Rowan is of age at that time, but yeah. So that's, you know, they, Eamon and Tegan get orphaned very young at a very young age. Um, you know, it's a heartbreaking side effect of war, but also I think it, this probably affects their development, affects who they are. And I would probably argue instills this loyalty to the Theron line within them because their parents died for it and for Ferelden. Um, so that's really significant to me. Yeah, I also think that it really puts into character both Eamon's and Tegan's decisions around Alistair uh, mm -hmm. and to keep him around and to raise him and how Alistair views them as family because they also, even though Alistair isn't orphaned technically, he might as well be. And so I think that really brings to light why Tegan and Eamon offer such kindness to Alistair. Yeah, and I know a lot of people disagree that that Eamon offered Alistair any kindness at all, but I do really believe that he cared for Alistair. And if Isolde wasn't in the picture, I fully believe that Eamon would have raised Alistair as a son um, fully. So... But we're not talking about Eamon, we're talking about Tegan. So, um, you know, in, in 902 Dragon, the Orlesian occupation officially ends for good. And Eamon returned home to become the Arl of Redcliffe since it, the, it had been empty. That seat had been empty for almost three years since his father died. But Tegan stays in the Free Marches. And in the Free Marches, he became an excellent horseman. 
and he developed a passion in life. And this greatest passion was to participate in the grand tourney. And his instructors in horsemanship and all of the things he was competing in, they believed that he could, in fact, succeed in this goal. And so he would go on to represent Ansberg in the tournament. And on the day of Tegan's 18th birthday, just a few weeks before one of the final preliminary tournaments in Starkhaven um, for the Grand Tourney, Tegan receives a letter from Eamon. And this letter asks him to return to Ferelden and rule the Benorn of Rain Sphere. Tegan wanted to say no and was fully prepared to say no, but his aunt Thalia convinced him, you know, just go back at least, at least talk to Eamon in person um, and at least tell him no in person. So Tegan goes back to Denerim. That's where they meet. Um, and that's also where he meets Isolde for the first time because Eamon has brought Isolde with him to Denerim. And, um, so they decide to go back to Radcliffe together for just like a short visit. And on the journey from Denerim to Redcliffe, Eamon is trying to convince Tegan to become the new ban of this area. And by the time they had reached Lake Callanhad, which, as you know, is probably halfway, Tegan had agreed to become the ban and move back to Ferelden. Um so Tegan really gives up his dream and his goal in life to become a band, to serve in his duty to Ferelden. Um, and, and he doesn't completely give this up because despite his new responsibilities, Tegan does return to Ansberg every single year and he visits his family there. But he does give up his dream of participating in the Grand Tourney when it was so close, um, so close to being within his grasp. He gives that up for honor and for duty. I think that's really interesting. And I think that, yeah, I think it's a story we hear over and over again of like the kid who, or the child who wants to do this passion, but they have a responsibility to their family that they feel like they can't give up. And I do think that Tegan is a good noble. Despite like my frustrations with his character in Inquisition and in Trespasser, he is a good noble. Like he tries to care for Connor. He tries to find a solution that doesn't result in Connor's death. He tries to do all these things. Like he is a man. He is an honorable person. I completely agree. And like we even do see that in Inquisition, even though his characterization in Trespasser is not what I would personally want. We do see him still doing this and being honorable, being noble in Inquisition because he he gives the rebel mages a place to stay. He didn't have to do that. He has absolutely no allegiance to the mages. Um, but I think because of Connor, because of his nephew, he is convicted to make sure that they're not just being like completely hunted down and eradicated by the rebel Templars. And so he gives them a place to stay. And we, we know what happens. <laughs> like they're under the influence of Tevinter mages, but I think that that is a noble action and a good and a signal of a good person. So the first time we meet Tegan officially is in Origins. And right after the Battle of Ostagar, actually, you can see Tegan in a cutscene with Loghain at the lands meet or at a lands meet rather, where Tegan seems very suspicious of Loghain 
and his withdrawal from the battle, he seems to be the original questioner and person who is questioning Loghain about Loghain's actions. So Tegan is kind of the first line of defense against Loghain. He is the first one that takes a stand against this war hero and is like, this doesn't add up. Something's not making sense here. Why did you do this, this, and this? And at first, obviously, we know that the nobles, the other bands, and Arles are not really fully supporting Tegan. And then as the story goes on, we we know what happens. Tegan originally has some distrust of Loghain. And given like what we know about the calling and about not or not the calling, but the stolen throne. And how much do you think Tegan and Eamon knew about Rowan and Loghain's relationship or the like tension that was caused between Merrick and Loghain about that? We have no idea. Um, we also have really no idea of the nature of the relationship between Tegan and Eamon and with Rowan because the only time they're mentioned is at the very beginning of the stolen throne when they get sent to the free marches. And so we genuinely have no idea if she was super close to them, if they were distant, we genuinely don't know. I, I would imagine Tegan being ban of, being ban of an area close to Ostagar, I, I would assume maybe he even had scouts at Ostagar who, who said, hey, I don't know if everything's lining up because we do know that there are some survivors of the battle. Um, so I, I don't know. We really genuinely don't know the answer to the question you're asking. All right. That makes sense. All right. we That was just a question I had, but we can keep going. Okay, well, the last thing I had to say about this lands meet that we see a cutscene of is that Queen Ash- Queen Honora basically like reassures everyone, like, "Oh, my father is quote doing what's best for Ferelden," and Tegan absolutely does not accept this. He brushes her off and asks her basically, like, "Well, did Logan do did Logan do what was best for your husband for Kaylin?" Um, and so he completely clapped back with sass, like from day one, hundred percent. So I think that that's also significant that we see him not, not accepting just like the general, oh, well, this is what happened. Let's move on kind of line of thinking. Of course, your player character gets to meet Tegan when you go to Redcliffe and you find out that the village is being besieged by undead and that Arl Eamon is sick and locked in the castle and all of this, all the things. Um, Tegan gives you a rundown of everything that's happened and basically begs you for your help. Um, So you can then help. And after the battle, he gives a great celebratory speech where you then have to go to the Redcliffe Castle and deal with Connor and the demon. So when you get to the castle, you see Ban Tegan with his iconic dancing. It's in gift form on the Internet um, where he's basically acting a fool, acting as a jester at the behest of the demon who is possessing Connor. Tegan gives you um after well after after the quest to deal with connor tegan remains um at the castle ruling in the place of Eamon, who is still sick 
Um, Tegan also goes to the lands meet, participates in the Battle of Denerum, and leads multiple, multiple attacks on the Dark Spawn throughout um, the battles at the end of the game. And then lastly for Origins, if the Warden sacrifices themselves, Tegan will attend your funeral. And that's Origins. A lot happens in Origins. So in Dragon Age 2, we also see Tegan, and not just in not just in the DLC. So there are a few different ways. If Alistair was made king of Ferelden, he appears as Alistair's aide when Alistair travels to Kirkwall. If Alistair was exiled and became a drunk, Tegan appears in The Hanged Man during Act 2 to bring Alistair back to Ferelden. And then lastly, in the Mark of the Assassin DLC, Tegan appears as a guest of Duke Prosper at Chateau Hain. And then in the Masked Empire, which we talked about last week, Tegan appears briefly as the royal ambassador to Orlais. He attends a ball where he's mocked by Gaspard and basically starts the Orlesian Civil War. So I don't know. Is is Was that Tegan's intention the whole time? We'll never know. But what we do know is that Tegan does later on send Celine a letter basically saying, hey, thanks for inviting me to the ball. I'm outie and going back to Ferelden. See you never. <laughs> he just like basically like leaves town as fast as he can. And then, of course, in Inquisition, um, we do see him again with his terrible character model um, after the Fifth Blight, Arl Eamon decided to remain in Denerim, and he made Tegan the new Arl of Redcliffe. And so while Eamon and Tegan are both very, very popular with their subjects, Connor is not so much. Um, and he was killed in either 930 Dragon or forbidden by Chantry Law from inheriting his father's title because he was a mage. And so knowing that Tegan would do really well in the role, Eamon abdicated and gave the um, role to Tegan instead. And so that's how he becomes Arl Tegan Garen of Redcliffe. And then, like I mentioned earlier, in 941, the rebel mages were given refuge in Redcliffe by um, Ferelden's monarch and by Arl Tegan. And so um, when the mages allied with the Venatori, um, Alexius evicts Arl Tegan, basically just kicks him out um, and takes control of the town, which is sad. But Tegan goes back to Dinnerum and is basically like, hey, you guys need to help Redcliffe. Like, we're screwed. Um, and then later on, Tegan demands that the Inquisition provide reparations for Redcliffe. And if the Inquisitor does so, Tegan apologizes for the unpleasantness he showed them and extends an invitation to participate in a tournament to basically win a um, the right to rule a Benorn. And then eventually Tegan does return to Redcliffe. He resumes his duties. And even as Arl, he spends more time in the free marches than he does in Denerim or Redcliffe. Um, and often in Grand Tourney years, the people of Redcliffe complain that they see him so little, they might as well be governed by a portrait on the wall. Awkward. Um, and then in Trespasser, 
obviously, like we discussed earlier in the episode, he represents Ferelden and the Exalted Council and calls out some of the Inquisitor's actions like capturing Care Bronach. And he criticizes the Grey Wardens a lot and compares the groups and is generally a very unhappy man. So I did bring a few fun facts about Tegan here at the very end, if you're cool with that. Let's do the fun facts. Okay. So if you play a female Grey Warden in Origins, you can optionally flirt with Tegan at the Chantry. Unfortunately, it does not lead anywhere, nor does it have any effect on romanced companions, even if they are present and in the party. It's very sad. Full Tegan romance win. Another interesting thing is Tegan's appearance. I know we've talked about it ad nauseum, but here are some specifics. Tegan's eyes and hair between Origins and Two are different colors. Um, Blue eyes and brown hair in Origins and brown eyes and red hair in Two. In Inquisition, he once again has blue eyes like in Origins um, and brown hair like in Origins, but he looks almost nothing like his appearance in Two or Origins, which again is because the devs use the Mayor Dedrick body model to create Tegan. Um, But basically what I'm trying to say here is that his appearance has drastically changed from game to game to game. So that's at least interesting. Um, Another fun fact is that before the final battle in Denerim, his name is shown as Lord Tegan, not Ban Tegan. And speaking of the final battle in Denerim, Eamon specifically tells Tegan to stay behind, stay in Redcliffe. And yet you see him in Denerim fighting Darkspawn. So he clearly does not follow the instructions of his older brother. Um, and then the last, very last fun fact I have is that there is a side character in Origins named Caitlin who has a side quest with a sword. And if you pay her well for the sword, she eventually opens up a like sword making business, a foundry, and her and Tegan eventually get married. Aww. So no Tegan romance. Yeah, unfortunate. I know. Well, if he has his DAO model or DAI model, you don't want to romance him. That is correct. That is very correct. But I did also bring two quotes. Um, and this one, first one is just really funny because it's like ex- explains everything about um, what we were talking about earlier about him being family to Alistair. And so Alistair says to Hawk, right, uh, I'm Alistair, uh, king of Ferelden. And this is my, this is Tegan, my uncle, sort of. And Tegan says, I'm actually Tegan. I'm only sort of his uncle. That's funny. And then lastly, while speaking with a female hawk, he says, you are very brave. Take this with my blessings. You remind me of someone I hold dear, though I never had the courage to say that to her, which my headcanon is that that's about a female warden who flirts with him. Personal opinion. Okay. I was like, it could be. It could be anyone. It could be a female warden. It could be his older sister, Rowan, because we don't know how close they were. It could, it could be Thalia, his aunt. Um, it, it could, could be. Also- it could be. I want it to be about me as the warden, though. But it could also be maybe about Caitlin. Maybe something happens to her. I don't think that's true because he says, I never had the courage to say that. And I feel like he would say, oh, you're important to me if you marry someone. 
guess but that's I true. guess we'll never know. So um, that was Tegan. Do you have thoughts about Tegan um, questions or just anything else to add about him as a character in the, in this game series? Um, I know that a lot of the fandom is, was really mad at Tegan at the end of trespasser. And I, for one kind of do understand where he's going. He's coming from. I do think that it's a little kind of out of character for him to not kind of, to be so narrow focused but again, I get it. Like, I get his position. I still think, like, Tegan is an honorable person. Like, if I encounter Tegan in Dreadwolf, I'm probably going to automatically, as, like, the player, Austin, I am going to automatically, like, trust Tegan. Yeah, I think that's fair. We know but, that I love him. But, yeah. I just think that Tegan is, I think he's an honorable person. And for all we know, like, Really, his time between the two years between the end of the war with Corypheus to the Exalted Council could have been a really hard time for the nobles of Ferelden. Really, if we really want to think about it, and like where Redcliffe is situated next to Ferel, next to Skyhold, they're pretty close to each other geographically. And so he probably has had some run ins with the Inquisition that maybe not all have been positive in the past two years. So there might be reasons for his distrust and anger towards the Inquisition. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we see so much um, Inquisition members happening and being in and around Redcliffe. So I think that that's entirely possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, But that's all I have, if you have anything else to add. No, I think I'm good. So let's wrap it up. All right. Well, before we go, a special thank you to our Nug King patron, Louis H., who gets a special thank you at the end of every show. And then thank you all for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, join our Cups Podcasting and More Discord server. It's easily the best place on the internet. You can also support us financially through our Patreon. You can find us there on patreon.com slash dragonagelorecast. The Dragon Age Lorecast is part of the Robots Radio Network. For more information about the Robots Radio Network, join the Discord server via the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed the show or learned something new today, please subscribe, leave us a review, and join the Patreon. And if you enjoyed our intro and outro music, give a big thank you to Pipe Man Studios. Thank you, Pipe Man. Thanks again for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We'll see you next time. When a wasteland detective and a vault girl cross paths, no criminal is safe. You're both under arrest. Don't move a muscle if you know what's good for you. Based in Bethesda's Fallout series, follow Walter and Bunny as they traverse the Texas Commonwealth and New Vegas, busting big crime rings. We'll need all we can to expand into Vegas territory. And surviving anything the wasteland can throw at them. It's him! It's the Mothman! 
Featuring a series of nail-biting narratives and guest stars from across the Fallout community. It's anybody's guess what thrilling case is up next. War never changes, does it, Bonnie? No, it certainly does not. True Vault Escapades, a Fallout audio drama. Available anywhere you get podcasts. Thank you.